Well, hey friends, Heike Yates here, and I'm so excited you're joining me for today's episode. And hello to all new listeners, and welcome back to those who are already fan of our show here at the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Today's topic is something that I know a lot of us are dealing with, and that is asking for something in life. And it may be right now, to use this as an example, it may be time to ask for a raise but you're already biting your nails because of it. You may wake up at night, wide awake, sweating, mind racing, because you have a meeting with the boss today, asking for the raise that you know you deserve. You start to worry about how you ask the boss, even though in your mind you went over it a hundred times and you know that you deserve that raise. So, but what exactly are you going to say? And how is your boss going to respond? And in your mind, you replay scenarios of what the boss is going to say. How will you respond? And you try to prepare for all the situations that you may encounter. Or even that you're sent away again without another phrase yet again. Before you even ask, you feel embarrassed, small, and powerless. Today, we talk to our expert, Dia Bondi, about how to ask like an auctioneer. Yeah, like an auctioneer. Clarify your terms and stand up for them. And negotiate with courage and confidence to accelerate your financial and career success. So let's dive into today's interview. I'm Heike Yates, a fitness and nutrition coach with 30 years of experience. I empower women over 50 to take back their health and strength to lead a vibrant life. Right now, you're joined by thousands of women over 50 around the world who stop dimming their light and instead ignite their spark. On this podcast, I do what I do best, taking complicated information about fitness, nutrition, and mindset strategies, and breaking it down into baby steps that are simple, actionable, and sustainable, so you can implement them into your life. I regularly interview some of the most inspiring women who share their honest stories on how they went from their worst to their best life, so that you know you're not alone in your struggles. Join me as we redefine what aging looks and feels like by taking action and saying, yes, I can. This is the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Today's guest is Dia Bondi. She has coached CEOs, innovators, and ambitious professionals and led workshops at corporations, including Quartz, Twitter, and Facebook. She helped Rio secure the 2016 Summer Olympics, and she has spoken at the 2018 3% Conference and Pandora's Women Women in Tech Summit. After attending auctioneering school for fun, she translated the techniques she's learned into a program that prepares women to ask for more and leave nothing on the table called Ask Like an Auctioneer. Dia has been covered on CNBC, Make It, and Forbes. Welcome to the show, Dia. 
So glad to be here with you and your listeners. Oh, thank you. So who is Dia and where is she coming from? Who am I? Yes. I mean, that's a really big question. I would say I'm an adventurer. I am a connection seeker. I am an adrenaline junkie. Um, but mostly I, you know, professionally, I am a longtime leadership communications coach and creator, as you mentioned, ask like an auctioneer. And the communications work that I've been doing for, um, for my life has gone on for about 20 years and Ask Like an Auctioneer just launched last year, 2019. I'm also a mom of two kiddos. I have a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old and I married my high school sweetheart. We're on 20 years this year. Hallelujah. That's awesome. I know. I still like him. I like him a lot. <laughs> well, that's fantastic because that's what you hope for in a marriage that's going on for that long. Right? It's so long. It's crazy. We sometimes look at each other and we're like, really? 20 years? But I still like you. Okay. That's, that's fantastic. No. Yeah. What does a communications coach do? So, um, I mean, there's lots of different shapes and sizes of communications coaches. What my main area of focus is, is helping leaders at, um, leaders and entrepreneurs, um, not to say the entrepreneurs aren't leaders, but it's just a different, you know, being accountable as a leader to, uh, you know, a team of multi thousands, um, is really different than being sort of an in an entrepreneurial context in early stage or mid stage. Um, but either way, my job is to really help them find the courage to speak from the heart at the most critical communications moments in their leadership and in their businesses so that they can align their people, teams, partners, and cultures towards shared goals and move together. What that also means for their experience is helping them really gain a sense of control at those most critical moments where things can feel a little bit like, what do I do with my hands? Which is, you know, a, a silly, a silly example. It's not at all. I don't work on the level of like, what do I do with my hands? But the feeling's the same. Like, how do you, how do I take control and know what I'm doing and feel a sense of like actually being present to the moment? Um, and then really so that they can have the kind of impact that they want. And it's, ask like an auctioneer is actually not that different in terms of sort of how it plays out in what we, what we work on. Same thing, but it's, it's more about, um, how do you have the courage to ask for more? How do you put yourself in control of the negotiations you need to make so that you can impact your goals? So yeah. either it's, way, when you work with me, you kind of get the same thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered what a communications coach does. It's not like a divorce coach or a, or a relationship um, coach. No, I, I don't. The, the territory that I live in is really about critical broadcast communications moments. It's less about the interpersonal side of it. When you think about when, when a leader has to step into the spotlight, maybe they're, they've been <clears throat> inside of an organization for many years and they've just been promoted to a VP level or a C level and they need to stand in front of their all hands for the first time and help, the, help their, their talent community understand and see them as the leader of what they're in charge of now, basically what they're accountable for now to sort of um, reshape their relationship with that community and tell a story that helps people understand where we're going now. Um, when I worked on Rio de Janeiro's bid, what that really meant was helping um, bid members stand in front of the IOC and um, literally de deliver a speech from a teleprompter in a highly produced context, but super high stakes and actually still have it be human. You know, and that feels like just a performance end of it, but it's actually not because in the script writing process, as a coach, my job is to help 
whoever needs to stand and deliver that script actually believe it and have it aligned and authentic to who they actually are while it's also tied to the strategic aspects of the, of the story that the whole bid team is needing to tell. So these are all really a lot about really high stakes moments where the spotlight is on you. So yeah, in terms of, in terms of the entrepreneurship um, sort of stakes moments, those are really like pitch moments, partner conversations, high stakes sales conversations, those moments when, I'm gonna say it again, like stakes are really high and you're in the spotlight. Now let's talk about storytelling because you have a story to tell how you went to auctioneer schools as a item on your bucket list. <laughs> I did. What do you want to hear about it? Where do I start? Man, that's a good question. I would never think of going to auctioneer school. So it's like, wow, why would you pick that? So, I mean, the story goes way back. My early mentor said to me, you know, we can't ever ask our coaching clients and folks in our workshops to do something that we wouldn't be willing to do ourselves or try at least in these sort of performance moments. And um, so a lot of my job as a coach is to also remember, just to keep my empathy muscle really strong, to remember what it feels like to be on the other side of um, the experience, you know, of standing in front, like just to, to be my own client sometimes, to remember what it feels like to learn something new when all eyes are on you. So I take, you know, I take, uh, I take applied improv classes here and there. I take dance classes here and there. I put myself in the context of, of fumbling publicly when I um, and learning something new that is kind of performative as a way to remember what it feels like. And also I, you know, I can borrow and steal techniques from the teachers that I, that I learn from in those contexts, even though it's unrelated to communications to generate interventions that work for my clients. So it's a learning for my work and it's a, a reminder of like what it feels like to be in that context. So um, I do that like periodically. I, um, so my kiddos are 13 and 10 and when they were teeny tiny, we were part of a preschool co-op in our community. We have um, preschools that are sort of parent run and part of that is, and, and maybe some of your listeners have kids that or at any age that have gone to schools where fundraisers are a really important part of keeping the lights on. And so um, because I've been a, a speaker coach and in the context of being in front of audiences for a long time, we had a fundraiser one year and the parent community said, none of us want to get up on stage with a mic and, and live auction our items at this fundraiser. Dia, you do it. I had never done it before. I, I, I didn't even look up any YouTube videos or do the things you're supposed to do to prepare for that. I just made myself an outline. I got up in front of the room and there were probably about, I feel like maybe 150 folks in the room. They're parents and grandparents and friends of our parenting community. And I had a blast. It was so much fun. It was, you know, I'm used to being in front of an audience, but it's a very different thing to tell a story in a broadcast way, to be a speaker um, and be a a, um, an auctioneer. It's sort of auctioneering is like this interesting thing where you're the only one talking, but it's still a conversation because people are giving, they're using their paddles or they're winking at you or, you know, making another motion that indicates where they are in the, in the asking that you're doing as you're selling or asking for direct pledges. So you're in dialogue, but you're the only one talking. So it was a really fun exploration. A couple of months later, maybe, I don't know, I did it like maybe I did auctioneered for our preschool 
for a fundraiser like two or three years in a row. And um, then I let somebody else do it. And during that time, I was out for dinner with some friends and we were all talking about like weird stuff we would do in our lives. And I said, you know what I would do one time? Like I would actually learn how to be an auctioneer, like to actually do it. And, and, um, and my girlfriend at the time at that table said, oh, that's so funny. My dad's an auctioneer. He was an engineer in Montana, but also an auctioneer as a sort of a hobby and a side gig. He had a junk shop on the side of, um, on the, side of the road there and would go to different auctions to buy for his junk shop. I mean, and then, excuse me, he would go to auctions to buy for his junk shop, but also would auction items off at his own auctions for his junk shop. Yeah, um, yeah it's so funny. And so um, a couple of years ago, I kind of took a, 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 a low level, um, what I think of as a working sabbatical and just sort of um, didn't, I just took a rest and a look around, you know, um, we all, it's very easy, especially maybe as moms or caregivers to kiddos to really run on a long tail of burnout. And I noticed that I needed a break. Like I needed to just be home, work out every day, ride my bike, do a lot of journaling. I read, I did a few projects with clients and some other of my collaborators, but I really took a working sabbatical. And during that time, I thought, oh, this is a perfect time for me to learn something new that is not directly related to the world of communications. And my husband said, hey, remember that thing you said you would do? And I was like, oh yeah. And he said, maybe now's the time to do it. So I poked around the internet and it turns out there's something called auctioneering school. You can go to auctioneering school to learn how to auctioneer. So I packed my bags and I went to St. Louis and me and a hundred cowboys for 10 days um, in a hotel on the side of Route 66. I was like one of five women in the group. Um, learned how to auctioneer everything from cattle to art to real estate to $5 box lots. And when I was done with that week or that 10 days, I was like, what am I going to do with this? Like really, Dia. Um, and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? You know, there are not a lot of women in this space. And I am a big champion um, for, for women reaching and sort of you know, chasing their ambitions and helping them be successful in that. And so I thought, all right, I'll, I'll do this. I'll, I'll use this as a hobby, an impact hobby. And so now in the Bay Area, I do not very many, you know, 10 a year. I do um, fundraising auctions for women-led nonprofits and nonprofits that benefit women and girls. And in that process, after doing it for, uh, you know, a year or two, I was like, oh my gosh, everything I'm learning in this world is so directly related to how we can ask more powerfully in our careers and in our businesses and how we can use asking, direct asking, um, direct, courageous um, asking full of our own worthiness and, um, and um, I don't know, and generosity to, this, to ourselves and the people that we ask, um, how we can apply asking as a success strategy in our careers. And so I launched Ask Like an Auctioneer. There it is. So, Dia, what was the first thing you sold? Oh my gosh. On the auction. What's the first so, thing? So at, at auctioneering school, that's so funny. Um, at auctioneering school, it's funny. I, I remember what I bought at this auction, but I can't actually remember what I sold. Um, I have a picture of it. Um, the, so at auctioneering school, after 10 days, you, we actually went to a, an art gallery and did a live auction with an audience. Like, you just, you got to get on the horse, like, right now. And I sold, everybody had to sell two things. And I think what I sold was 
an antique, a set of antique cups for like $7.50 and a small, and one other small item. I can't remember what the other small item was. Um, but that was at auctioneering school. The auction that I did for my preschool years and years and years before, five, seven years before, you know, they were trips and gift packages and inconsequential items that people still love to compete on. So very true. Because I was thinking I, when I hear auctioneer, when I read your bio and all this, I'm thinking all these people that go, is that how you yeah. It's a, that's called a chant. And yeah, a lot of folks in the world of, um, of auctioneering on like the livestock side will develop a chant. In fact, there are competitions for, for people, um, to, you know, for the, for their chants. There's like a, uh, there's like a national auctioneering competition. Um, because I'm in fundraising, um, I don't tend to use a chant. I do have a rhythm that I use, but I don't have a fully developed chant. If I did, let's be clear, at a lot of the events that I do, by the time we get into the direct pledges and the live auction, the champagne has been flowing. People are not going to auctions as their like main way they run their businesses. You know, a lot of these um, big professional commercial auctions, people are at auctions, buying and selling at auctions, like that's their job. And that's their, you know, they're showing up at auction and buying things for their businesses on a regular basis. And so getting familiar with someone's chant isn't of a, in like, is a, a, um, a challenge right there. So even auctioneers with a strong chant, if they do charity events, they tend to back that down a little bit so that the audience at least knows what they're buying at what price. <laughs> <laughs> So, ladies, if you want to be an auctioneer, Dia did it. You can do it too. And I mean, I think it's just—it could be a fun skill to learn. But it's hard. Let me be clear. It's hard. God, I can't imagine you and five, four other girls amongst all these cowboys. I'm like, all right. Yeah, it was. It was an experience. But what about bringing us back to ask like an auctioneer? Why do women lowball ourselves? Now, our group is women over 50. We're going into second careers, perhaps even third sure. careers. Um, we lowball ourselves. We, we don't want to ask, and I hear this over and over again. So, shed some light on why do we lowball ourselves and how can Ask Like an Auctioneer help us? Because getting a no sucks. <laughs> yes. So, we, so, we shape all of our asks mostly based on what we think we can get, what we can get a yes to. So, you know, sometimes I've worked with a lot of women. Women have come to my workshops um, and women in, my, in the audiences for my keynote, you know, they sometimes don't realize that they're, that they're lowballing themselves. In fact, I, once I started auctioneering, I saw that I had been co-conspiring with my clients, you know, on helping them lowball themselves. The question, you know, when I work with women, um, when I work with any of my clients um, around the critical moments that they'll have on stage, whatever stage, whatever, whether it's a, from the boardroom to a ballroom, you know, the first question I always ask is, you know, okay, great, let's, let's put together your 12 minutes on stage. What are you going to say? And the question is always, what do you want? Like, what is the ask at the end? We, in business, we call it a call to action, right? What's your CTA? And um, if, and very often, the answer that I get to that question is, well, what do you think I can get? And for 20 years, I was, I loved that question. I was like, yeah, what do we think we can get? You, you know, you're going to go talk to your executive team about growing, uh, your executives about growing your team and you need headcount. What do you think you can get? 
Oh, I think I can get 10 heads. Okay, great. Let's ask for 10. And what I, what I didn't see until I started auctioneering is that when we shape our asks based on what we think we can get a yes to and don't actually challenge what we think we can get a yes to, we, don't, we stop deciding what other people will say yes or no to and instead refocus the ask on what is it that I actually want and let risk getting a no, that's when you end up getting more. So let's imagine, you know, you've got a leader in an organization who's going into, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address the question of, you know, career change, because actually I had, a co- I had a coaching conversation last year with a woman who was pivoting in her 50s, um, and it was super relevant to, to it's just like all the stuff we're talking about right now is super relevant to her journey. So, you know, if we say, I, I, want, I think I can get 10 heads, but what I really need is 15 Maybe you're going to go into that conversation and if you can willingly risk getting a no and ask for 15 and negotiate down to 12, you may end up with two more than you thought that you could get if you had just aimed for 10 that was a guaranteed yes. Maybe you needed, maybe, maybe you, the, you know, the worst case scenario is you have 10 heads, the best case scenario is you have 18, so you ask for 20 and negotiate down to 16. So we, we constantly shape our ass to get a yes because a yes feels good. A yes is validating. A yes is safe. A yes is all the things we want, but it's not actually the thing we need or we want in order to actually further our goals. So we kind of, I've been a lot of women who are like, I don't have any problem asking. I was like, yeah, I know because you've probably been shaping your asks to make it, you always get what you want, don't you? Because you only ask for what you know you can get. <laughs> But, but what we do in auctioneering is we don't, we challenge that. We ask, we ask for $4,000 and we get seven hands in the air. Then we'll ask for 5,000. Then we'll ask for six and seven and eight and nine. We have two hands in the air. We'll ask for 10,000. We'll have one hand in the air. And then we'll ask for 11. We have no hands in the air. And then we'll ask for 11 again. We'll have no hands in the air. I'm going to sell it for 10,000, even though I asked for 11 because 11 tells me, oop. I just caught the, the maximum amount this situation will yield. And that's good news. Getting a no is good news. When I write proposals in my work now, I make sure that I'm making the kinds of asks that threaten a no and then negotiate down. And in fact, when I write a proposal for a strategic project or something, I send it off into the world and I get a yes right away. It feels great. But I also know that I didn't maximize the potential of that ask. What I love it, what I love to do is freak myself out, put a number on my proposals that I think might get a no, send it off and have someone come back and say, oof, outside of our budget, we can't do this. And for me to go, great, what's your counter? And then for us to work together to find that equilibrium that is, works for both of us. Do you think that women lowball themselves going for the yes because they're afraid to, not just to get the no, but that they don't deserve more than they ask for? Yeah, that's interesting you talk about that because, um, you know, I hear, this might be controversial, but I hear a lot of conversation right now, like, get what you deserve, you know, ask for what you deserve. And while I get the spirit of that, I don't love that language because what it, the, the dark side of that means that if we don't believe we deserve it, we won't ask for it and we won't level up. So what I encourage women to do is actually ask for more than what they think they deserve or what they're allowed to mm-hmm. and challenge their assumptions about what they do and don't deserve. 
So um, it also, what I don't like about that language is that it says to us, if we got a no, then we didn't deserve it. And that's not true. It's just that what you value and what the person, your, the person, organization, initiative, partner that you're asking doesn't have, they don't value it the same way you do. Yep. Absolutely. So we can't assume that the way we see value and the way our audiences see value is the same. It's never, it never is. So, and we can't decide for them what they value. So we have to be, we have to make an honest ask tied to what we actually need to make the moves that we need to make to reach our goals in our businesses and be okay with the no's we get. That's the flip side of this too, is we have to be willing to accept a no. Now in my workshops and my keynote, which are the two main offerings in the world, I get a lot of questions. What, what, the why women don't ask for more? I mean, the, the, the concerns I hear from women, they raise their hands and they say, and this isn't just for women, but women, women are the, is the population I really want to impact with this. If I can get half the people that come for, through my workshops can get 20% more in their next salary negotiation that they would otherwise, I'm like, yes, you know, I want to put more my big why is that I want to put more decision power and money in the hands of women. So if that, if that means the kinds of asks are non-financial, but they're about influence, they're about promotions, they're about putting yourself in a decision-making capacity, um, yay. You know, Because a lot of the asks we make in our careers are actually non-financial. So, um, so the, the things that I hear from women a lot are like, do you have a question? And a lot of them are, how do I ask without looking like, and then fill in the blank, (laughs) look greedy, look so-and-so look, you know, look crazy. You know, I have a lot of women who are like, how do I do this without looking crazy? Cause nobody, no woman wants to be told they're, they're crazy. Right? Like that's just such a weapon. Um, that pushy, overly greedy to overly ambitious. Like it's all about how not to be seen. And I, and I have found, though, that women, when women go out and challenge themselves and they actually ask for what they actually need to make the moves they need to make to reach their goals, um, very little of the feedback they get is that they're, that they're any of those things, that mostly it's they're, you know, they're confident. Also, the, most of the time when we go to make an ask, you know, if we can explain it, we can ask for it. Even if for the freelancers listening, even if your explanation is, well, I've raised my rates this year. <laughs> like you get to, you like, you get to, you get to have a story that you own about why that ask matters. So the, to the question of like, why do we love all ourselves? It's, it's, I think it's the fear of that backlash, understandably. Um, and that's true you know, that backlash does exist and we see it in studies. We see it as a high level, you know, story that women experience. And when I talk to a lot of women individually, it may have happened to them individually, but, but the, the threat isn't as immediate as they might think. Mm-hmm. So in a, talking about career change now, switching in, in, in your midlife, so to speak, and a new career, what what would you do? How would you start asking for what you may have wanted to do all your life, but now you may lack the funds, you may lack uh, t- skills. So how do you move forward from that? And use the techniques of ask like an auctioneer. Great. So I want to talk about um, this woman that I spoke to last year um, after one of my workshops. She She's in Alaska. She's in her 50s. She was an engineer. 
for an architectural firm for many, many years, 10 or 15 years, some long chunk of time. And she was ready to make a big career change. And the asks that she had to make weren't about where she was going directly, weren't actually about, she was wanting to actually move into the real estate business. And the asks she needed to make weren't about the real estate, the business, they were about the status of her employment right now. In order for her to reach her goal over there, um, she had to actually renegotiate her deal with her employer to go from a full-time 50 hours a week salaried position to an hourly position that was double her, what you'd calculate as her hourly rate, um, go down to 20 hours a week so she could start investing and building her real estate business. And she was scared out of her mind that they were going to be like, you're insane. No, you know? Um, and so the conversation had to be about what do you really, honestly, regardless of what they'll say yes or no to, what is it that you need in order to set yourself up for making that next move? And that I think is the, that's where some of the asks that are a little bit hidden lie. So it's not just like, what skill do I need? But it's like, maybe what Look, in my, in my workshop, Your Most Powerful Ask Live that I bring to women's, um, women's associations and organizations that will put budget behind um, women's initiatives internally, I never ask, what's your goal then? What's your ask? What, I have to, what we have to do is do that middle part, which is what's your goal and what's the next big move you need to make that, that, will, that will move you toward your goal? And then what ask do you need to action that move? Okay. So for this woman, her goal was to build a thriving real estate practice in her very small Alaskan community. Um, the big move she needed was to make enough money, but have more time to invest in that career move. And so what that meant was the asks she needed to make were about renegotiating her existing situation with her employer. So I would offer to your audience, don't just think about goal. Think about like, if that's my goal, what's one of the big moves I need to make right now that move me closer? I'm writing the book proposal right now for Ask Like an Auctioneer. My goal is to publish a book in 2021. But that's almost such a big goal, I wouldn't even know where to start with asks. So the question I have to ask myself is, what is the next big move, big move, not small move, big move that makes a big, that will, that will bring me closer to that goal? And the next big move is to find an agent who understands and believes in this project and the potential of it, because I think it's actually multiple books. Um, so if that's true, then what is the ask I need to make? I need to make, I need to ask agents, the right agents to take me on as their client. Now, there's two versions of this. Let's apply the idea that I mentioned earlier about going for a yes or going for a no. Let's imagine, and I'm, you know, I assemble a list of 20 agents that are probably the right profile for me. There are going to be people in that list who feel like a guaranteed yes, right? Maybe they're not that, maybe they're not that famous. Maybe they don't have, you know, the, the names that I love and admire on their roster of clients. Maybe, you know, they feel like an easier yes. And then there's going to be a bank of the, of agents on that list that are my holy macaroni. Do I really deserve this kind of asks? Could I possibly ask the agent that represents, you know, 
somebody I really already admire in the nonfiction space, or does that feel too big for my britches? So how do I challenge who I might ask to make sure that I'm not lowballing myself there, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I can use that as a level up. So I think when I think about changes, I think about what's your goal? What's the next big move for you? And then what kinds of asks can you make that action that move? Does that make sense? You know, your little story reminded me of my daughter looking for college. Is right. Is she going to go for the, is she going to go for the one that is like, oh, I could totally get in there, but it's not that thrilling for me. It doesn't actually level me up. I, I could do it. Or do I go for the, do I reach for the one that I really have in my heart? I really want. So it was like my safety net. She had her safety net. She got in and then she had her, I really want that. And I was like, hold out for the, I really want that because you know, you're smart enough. You've got the capacity to do it. And she did hold out and didn't lower her standards just to feel safe. Did she get in? She got in. See, I mean, and, and here's the thing. It's kind of like we have to be willing. This is going to sound so sad, but it's actually very empowering. Like, you have to be willing to be disappointed. Yeah. And, and not actually internalize the answer we get as a comment on who we are and what we deserve. Instead, to, to, to look at it, I look at it, as like, not this time, not on this, not now. You know, if, if, I, got, if I get a no from the agents that I, that I will approach, it'll just be like, not me, not this time. Yeah. So what are some of the patterns in, in your business of communication that you've noticed over the 20 years when it comes to negotiating? It's funny, like I, I people ask me like, oh, so that's the connection you're about negotiations. And I'm like, sort of. It's, it's not, I don't even think of it really in terms of direct negotiation. I think because when I think about negotiation, it's actually kind of limiting, you know, like your daughter applying for the university that she really has in her heart, the one that thrills her, the one that if she doesn't get it, she'll be so sad um, instead of going for the safe route, knowing that she has what you talked about her, her safety net in my language, we would call that the reserve, like, you know, the, the, the thing that you would settle for and still feel like that's good. You know, I can say yes to that. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think of it in terms of just negotiation because negotiation kind of, when you think about negotiation, what do you think of? Hostages? You think of salary negotiations? You think about contracts, you know? But there are a million other places where we can use asking as a success strategy that don't fall into the quote unquote negotiation territory. Um, so some of, the, some of the patterns that I've seen in which part in the, in the storytelling to set up the ask or in the hand-wringing that happens before we write the story? <laughs> Ooh, that's a tough question because I think the hand-wringing is maybe more, even more challenging than the actual ask. Yes, hand-wringing is universal. Hand-wringing is everywhere. Like, it's just, it's like hand-wringing is a thing. And one of the patterns that I've seen over and over again is that, um, well, I don't know if this is a pattern, but let me, let me, just, let me just shoot it at you. You can tell me. Um, we assume that we need the confidence in order to ask. That is super, that is super similar to all of my speaking coaching clients. They want the confidence to step on stage. They want the confidence before they do it. Um, and what that, that's actually, that's not how it works. How it works is you get the confidence after you do it. So, um, maybe you're jumping off a diving board for the very first time. You don't feel confident the first time you do it and then you do it and you come out of the pool and you go, can you believe I did that? 
And now you're just, you have a burst of confidence. You want to do it again, or you know how to do it. So the confidence is actually an outcome of action. It cannot be a prerequisite. It cannot be because if it is, we'll never ask. You know, so my, such a good huh? thing because many women in my niche of health, nutrition, and fitness, they all want to feel confident. And I'm like, well, you can't just be jumping out of the, the pool and say, "Woo, I'm confident. I'm like, no, you have to build confidence. Yep. And you build it with action in my experience. And so where you actually get enough confidence so you can confidently walk into that ask, confidently walk out onto that stage, even though you're freaking out inside, you trust yourself enough. That's what it is. Like, you can trust yourself enough, even though you feel shaky, even though you feel vulnerable, even though you feel open, even though you feel like you're not, you, you know, you're unsure whether it's going to work is having a plan. Like that's the deal. So when we get, when I work on my, with my communications coaching clients, like if you know, if you have a story plan walking in and you know what your CTA is at the end um, and you define what success looks like for you, you're, you're going to walk in there freaking out and feeling enough of a sense of control to do it anyway. When you walk into a really strong, a powerful negotiation, whether it's a formal one that is in the world of negotiation, or if it's walking into a conversation that has an ask inside of it, or a pitch, you're still gonna have butterflies. You're still gonna have all those feelings that make you go, I'm not confident. But if you actually look at your plan, you are. You, you know what your ask is. You know what your reserve is. You understand how it fits into your goals. You've identified the values of your audience who you're talking to and how they overlap with the values of, 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 what, the, of what is inside the ask so that it's, inside of that, so here's a little side note, inside of every ask is also an offer. Uh-huh. Inside of every ask is an offer. Um, and I, I've learned this more directly in, in auctioneering. There's a moment in, you know, some of our activities in auctioneering are um, in fundraising is just to make direct pledge. Like sometimes I don't sell anything. I just stand in front of the room and say, hi, I'm Dia Bondi. I'm here to, um, I'm here to help you live and action your values through your pledges tonight. So I'm opening the floor up. We're asking for a $25,000 pledge tonight. Who's in at 25,000. And when paddles start going up in the air, yes, they're making a give, but the, but they are also getting the opportunity to action their values, to have the impact that they want to, to name and be part of a community to like, there's a, a whole, we often overlook what we're offering inside of an ask. Is there a right or a wrong time to ask? Oh, I, I don't know. Um, a right or a wrong time to ask. Say more about that. What would you imagine a wrong time would be? That you have a dream that you feel maybe that's too big or that you're not mentally prepared yet to go for that dream or that goal. Um, that you maybe have not quite defined your goal, but you, you know what you think you like, but is it really what you like? That's a great, okay. Um, so people ask me like, who's asked like an auctioneer for? And my answer is for women who know what, know what they want and they're ready for a level up and they need a strategy to do that. So yeah, the, maybe, maybe, I don't like the black and white of right and wrong, uh, maybe your, um, here's one way I think about it. Um, you'll know you're ready to ask if you can handle getting a yes 
Uh-huh. Like if you if you put an ask out in the world and you get a yes, are you ready to deal with the the, the consequences of the yes? <laughs> very well said. The consequences, very true. Yeah. So, so that's how I imagine a right or, or wrong time to ask. And it doesn't say that you shouldn't ask. It's like, is the thing you're asking for the right thing right now? Let's imagine you don't have, your goals aren't really clear. You know you want something, but you don't know what it is. Maybe the asks are to reach out to five other women who are doing the thing you think you, five other women who are strangers to you maybe, but who you admire to do, uh, to, to ask for 30 minutes of their time to do an informational interview so you can understand truly what it is so they can paint a picture for your potential future and you can get clearer about whether that's for you or not. Yeah. So what is your Zofo? Let's talk about the Zofo. The zone of freaking out is where the potential is. Hashtag Dia Bondi. That's right. So um, the Zofo is exactly that. It is the zone of freaking out. The Zofo is the territory um, that is above all of the asks you think you can get a guaranteed yes to. A guaranteed yes. Okay. It's the zone above, above, above the asks that you think you can get a guaranteed yes to. So go back to the headcount example we talked about earlier. When I work with leaders and I'm like, okay, you're going to go talk to the executive team. You want to build out this new, uh, you're going to build out this new team to execute against this particular strategy. And you say you need 10 heads. Is that true? And the answer is, no, it's actually 15. And I say, why don't you ask for 15? And the answer is, oh my God, I never could ask for 15. I just like, that's too big. That's too much. They might say no. Why can't you? Because when I ask for 15, it makes me freak out on the inside. So the zone of freaking out is the place that prevents us from actually exploring the potential of any one ask because the zone of freaking out says, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Don't be so unrealistic. You don't deserve this. You're going to get backlash. What if they think that you're ridiculous? You know, all the things that say, don't do it. We read it as, a, um, we read it as shame, but actually that's where the potential all is. And And if we're willing to actually step into our Zophos, our own personal Zophos, and make the asks that threaten a no, make the asks that make us freak out a little bit, and then see what actually happens, we end up getting more and reaching our goals faster. And secondly, you start to read those voices. Who do you think you are? This is outrageous. How could you possibly raise your rates to your clients by an entire 20% in one year? How dare you? that that is actually, when you're doing it, you start to read those as a sign that you're being courageous, not just a sign that you're doing something wrong. Nice, because I just did that last year, raising my rates, and it took me months to get to that point in fear of all the things that you have just mentioned. And in the end, everybody just says, of course. Yeah, we believe in you. Yes. Yeah, of course. And if Yep. And for the folks who are like, oh, your personal training rates just went up by 10%. Mm, I'm not for you. Okay. Okay. Right. You just made, you just made room in my roster for somebody else who can. Yep. And, I just- and, it, and when we get a no to, to, to meet the no that we get with gratitude, with generosity, with 
our own authenticity with a heart-centered acceptance of it is a really important part of this whole equation, I think. Yeah. So what can people learn in, at, um, in your programs or in your courses? learn about ask like an auctioneer sure so when i launched this project originally i was um i was like what is this what is it and um you know live experiences win for me every time so my core strategy now is to deliver ask like an auctioneer in live experiences which right now during covid where we're recording this um you know those live experiences are online live experiences so um if you participate in a workshop called your most powerful ask live um your and if you're going to you're going to learn the two key things we've talked about today that prevent us from asking for more and then the nine strategies from the world of auctioneering that help you step into your own zofo to actually embolden your ask and you're going to learn how to build a rock solid ask plan using that strategy i mentioned before about first identifying your goal your um your move and then the asks that go with that. In the keynote, if you happen to be in an audience for the keynote, you're gonna get the core, uh, you're gonna get the, the two key reasons we lowball ourselves and um, a shorter list of the emboldening strategies. So if you, if you have a chance to do that, um, it's still gonna be super useful. Like these are such simple ideas, women can action them right away. I do have, um, in the early days, I was like, this, this th maybe this is an online course for women that lasts you know, eight weeks or something. And what I do know is that course completion rates in the world are very low. Like I'm sure some of the folks listening right now spent money in an online course that still isn't completed in their inbox. And my nightmare is to bring this to women have them spend money um, and intention on it, but never complete it and get the impact that I really want it to have in the world. So I, I, I do have one online offering and it's very intentionally 57 minutes. And in those 57 minutes, it's a class called Welcome to the Zofo. You can find it, you can get to it at diabondi.com or at asklikeanauctioneer.com. It's $99 and it is four short modules. And um, women have used it in this last year. One woman, actually a former colleague of mine used it um, to get the, in her late 40s, to get the largest raise she's ever had as an engineering manager in her career which I thought was like, when she sent me that note, I was like, yes, that's what, that's it. And you can, you can use these frameworks immediately when you're done with the class, 57 minutes, you can do it in one sitting. It's a Netflix and chill kind of context. Um, and, and, and right away you might have enough to serve you like right there. You might be like, got it done. Don't need anything else. But if you want to get closer to me and do more, you can also, um, I'm going to be launching that this month. I'm launching, um, sort of open, you know, this is, comes from the world of fitness and dance for me, which is what I grew up in. These are open drop-in strategy calls called uh, Your Most Powerful Ask group strategy calls that are 90 minutes. You can get to them. You will be able to get to them by the time this airs. They'll be live on um, asklikeanauctioneer.com and you can get to them from diabondi.com um, where women can just pay a small fee, show up in a group. I will pick three women to do live coaching with and then we'll go to a Q&A. And I guarantee women who drop in on these classes are gonna be able to amp up their upcoming asks. You're gonna get strategies from the live coaching of other women, even if you're not the, a woman who's raising your hand saying, I'd like to be coached, that you can apply to your own situation. So that's how women could engage. And that's how they're, that's what they're going to get. They're going to get, they're going to get the, the mental model, and then they're going to get strategies that they can execute right away to make better, bolder, more fruitful asks.
I love that. Taking action instantly. I'm all about that too. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't, um, I don't maintenance a community around this right now. Um, because I, I also, I also, there's so many communities women are participating in right now. I want this to feel like bite-sized content that women can come in and take you know, you, you, maybe you don't take yoga, but you drop in for a yoga class one day because you feel like that's what you need. Maybe you don't take, um, you, you know, you don't take, a, you don't take a certain dance class, but you're going to drop in because you haven't done one for a while and you just feel like you need it to give you a boost. I want it to, the, the content that I offer in the world around this needs to feel like that. So women can dip in, dip out and act. Very nice. Um, yeah. What do you hope to achieve by sharing your story today? Oh, that's a nice question. I hadn't thought of that. Um, I think for for women to to give themselves permission to want the bigger thing, whatever bigger means for you, because bigger might not always mean more money. It could mean less money and more time. It could mean more connection and less you know less frenetic life. It could mean whatever more is for you to like give yourself permission to have it. And how can people reach you and learn more about you? Well, you can always go to diabondi.com or you can go and check out the project at asklikeanauctioneer.com. And you're also on Instagram and on LinkedIn, right? I am. I'm on Instagram at diabondia. And you can also subscribe to my YouTube channel at diabondi on YouTube. I post, I do lives on um, most Wednesdays and that's new for me. And also you'll find some other video content in there and demos of me uh, auctioneering if you really want to go have a laugh. Um, and then you can always connect with me. I love connecting with people in the business context. So find me on LinkedIn and reach out to me, please. Fantastic. And all these links will be in the show notes, guys. So you don't have to put out, take out your pen and scribble it down. So the links will be in the show notes for you to reach out directly to Dia. And I would love it too, if you reached out to us on social, you know, go on Instagram, if you're on LinkedIn, talk to us, tell us how this episode impacted your life, how you walked away with maybe more courage and more ask than you have before. And um, we'd love to hear from you. So reach out to Dia on Instagram or all her other social media channels. And you know mine, it's HeikeEats.com or the Pursue Your Spark podcast. And with that, Dia, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Loved being here with you. Thank you.